Hello, uh, this is Rico, and welcome to Treks in Sci-Fi, podcast number 344 for August 14th, 2011. Today on Treks in Sci-Fi, we're going to be looking at a classic sci-fi movie, uh, one that I've enjoyed a ton over the years. Just, it's it's really a great movie, has a lot of influences in there are a lot of influences i should say there are yes <laughs> a lot of influences in this movie that end up in original trek and from uh, then on to other star trek series and movies that we've seen over the years anyway the movie the classic sci-fi movie i'm going to be looking at is forbidden planet uh i've talked about this movie in other uh podcasts before I think there was one especially that I did some classic movies that I wanted to bring out, and I did maybe four or five, but I've never kind of dedicated a podcast to Forbidden Planet, and uh, today we're going to do that. Got some uh, other things to play, some listener comments, another uh, part to Kenny's uh, Comic-Con report, and uh, a whole lot more. So uh, sit back, relax, and uh, we're going to do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Treks in Sci-Fi podcast. Scotty, beat me up. Fascinating. Stand by to receive our transmission. Well, again, welcome to the show, everyone. For uh, new-time listeners or first-time listeners, perhaps, uh, this is the podcast where we talk about Star Trek and sci-fi fantasy, TV and movies, and and everything else in between. Uh, Try to cover a variety of things, uh, sometimes Star Trek episodes, sometimes other things. And today is another thing, which we'll be talking about Forbidden Planet uh, that I mentioned there at the beginning of the show. This uh, past week's been pretty good. Uh, got some stuff going on here around uh, the home, and, and work was, uh, I guess, okay. It was a pretty quick week. I thought it went by pretty well. I uh, got my computer almost back to the way I wanted after my hard drive uh, failure of about a week ago. So things are, are, are doing well. We're getting, actually, our new roof uh, is going to get put on uh, starting tomorrow. So I've got an extra day uh, this weekend off. Uh, I'm going to be doing a lot, though, and, and got a few things to take care of while they're here and, and stuff. So it'll be uh, my vacation days, as I've said, I think a few times are not usually vacation days, unfortunately. But got a lot of rain the last couple of days, too, and uh, that's kind of uh, slowed a few things down. But things uh, are looking pretty good for tomorrow weather-wise, so we should be in good shape. Uh, what else? I watched, oh, I wanted to mention, I, I watched the last two hours of Falling Skies uh, on, uh, is that a, uh, what is that, TNT series, I believe? And it was pretty good. I thought that they, uh, I expected more fighting, more battles in the last couple of hours. I'm not going to spoil it for those watching the series who may not have watched it yet, but uh, there were some interesting things happened, uh, and uh, like I, I kind of suspected at the, in the last few minutes of the show, some something kind of uh, major happens like they do, especially at the end of a season. They do uh, know and uh, they are uh, have been approved for a season two. Uh, they've approved that. I guess it's not going to come out until next summer, though, so it's going to be a good probably about at least a, like a nine-month wait, 
give or take, uh, before we'll get new episodes. And it only had a short season, too, for this summer. It, I think we got 10 episodes. I think maybe next year they approved maybe 12. I think it's a pretty good show, though. I, I, some people have called it a little slow at times and, and maybe uh, in somewhat cliche. But, you know, a, a series about an alien invasion, I think, it, you know, they've done so many movies and TV shows about that. Uh, I think they're trying to bring out some new things. I like the actors and the characters in the show. I think they've done a pretty good job with that. Uh, Noah Wiley, I think, is especially pretty good in this. I, I, I like his character a lot. So, uh, it's uh, yeah, it was a fun summer show to watch, and uh, I'll be looking forward to the next season uh, on uh, Falling Skies. You know, it's Steven Spielberg, his name is attached to it. I think he's one of the executive producers. How much he's involved in you know the series, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but some of the summer stuff is kind of winding down. We've still got uh, quite a few episodes, I think, left of Warehouse 13 and Eureka for the season. The big news in sci-fi world today was that uh, Eureka has been canceled by the Sci-Fi Channel. They uh, they actually canceled it uh, at the end of their season five. In other words, right now they are showing the the last part of season four. At some point, they will show a season five. I'm not sure what number of episodes they ended up with season five. I think it's a shorter season, maybe 10, 12 episodes in total. And then that's it for the series. So it's uh, I, I've enjoyed Eureka while it's been on. Uh, we were talking about it a little bit on the forum this past week. You know, sci-fi shows, it, it, it you know, and the sci-fi network, it, it's very hard to, you know, it, people do when they get attached to a show, get bothered when it's gone. I look at it, the, try to look at it this way, you know, the show has got five seasons, maybe they were kind of shorter seasons, but it's it's business. I, I, I get more upset when a series that starts out that I think has potential and only gets a few episodes or maybe even just one short season on the air, and then that's it. I get a lot more bothered by that. Uh, that's been happening with even non-genre, non-sci-fi type shows uh, over the past. There was a, uh, a show that I was watching last fall called, uh, what was it even called? <laughs> that's bad because I liked it a lot. Lone Star, sorry. It was called Lone Star about a guy, uh, Not a. it was just a drama. He kind of had sort of two lives in a way. And I, I won't really get into a whole thing about it, but I think we only saw two episodes of it, maybe three, two or three, and then it got canceled by Fox. So that, I think, is unfair. I mean, they build everything up, hire a cast, get writers, get the whole series going, and then two or three episodes, they cancel it. I mean, give us at least a season or a partial, you know, like a half season, maybe 10, 12 episodes at least to see what happens, maybe move times and channels, or not channels, but times and nights uh, that it's on and, and see what they can do about it. But when, it, you know, a series gets four or five seasons, uh, you know, it had a shot. You know, I'm still bothered when they canceled Enterprise after four seasons. I wish it, I could have, I think it could have gone longer easily. And it was really uh, getting very interesting. But the ratings, I guess, weren't there. So these things do happen and we just move on. There's some stuff coming on on the air this fall that looks pretty good. Looks like fantasy is in and fairy tale type shows. Uh, are coming back sort of Buffy-type style uh, things. Not to, too much really sci-fi. I, I, I still feel sorry that we, we lost Stargate Universe. I, sh I think that show was really uh, very good the last season or two. It started off a little rough for me. I, I was not all that happy and thrilled with the first season of it, but at the last couple, I think it was three seasons in total, I think they did a great job with it and the characters and, and just everything. And it was the only real sci-fi, what real real sci-fi series on in terms of uh, an outer space type adventure show. And we you know, we 
we've, it's gone. We don't have anything. And I don't think there's anything coming that, that I know of that's like that. Although, well, that's not completely true. We are getting a new run at Battlestar Galactica. Uh, they're doing this sort of prequel to the other series uh, that's, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to look up the status of that, see what's going on with that. I don't even really know how much they've been approved for. Uh, a pilot or a few episodes or a partial season. I'm not sure. I'll have to check into that and get back to you maybe next week on the podcast. So, um, But that's about it uh, uh, as far as that kind of news. Oh, the, the Trek stories I wanted to pass on this weekend uh, are there are two big conventions going on actually this weekend. We have a, uh, a big, the big annual Las Vegas Star Trek convention going on obviously in Las Vegas, Nevada. And there's also a Chicago Comic Con that is going on and there's some pretty big trek celebs there especially like patrick stewart i know rick pete is over at the chicago comic con and mina uh is uh who is awesome rococo on uh the forums she is out in vegas and i am going to play her she sent in a little bit of a clip here uh from her uh time at uh vegas uh, star trek um whatever you call it uh, creations uh vegas con the, the problem is and you'll notice this in her um clip that uh she sent in three parts via email to me and and for some reason the first part worked okay but the second two parts did not come through an email i don't know if the file sizes were too big or what sorry about that mina uh if you get a chance to maybe record something again in the future for next week or, or whatever you know send that on in if you want to continue or, or finish up your report but i will play the first part of her report here and then I'll, I'll i'll talk about that a little and then i'll probably be playing then kenny's uh his uh second part to his comic con report so anyway here's mina talking about uh star trek las vegas Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly with me. If you can use some exotic rules as a bar and far from me. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to the road. In Rama Land, there's a one man band that will do his flutes for you. Come fly with me, let's take off. Once I get you up there, where the air is rarefied, we'll just glide. Starry night, once I get you up there, I'll be holding you. Rare fly. 
We'll just glide Starry-eyed Once I get you up there I'll be holding you So near You may hear Angels cheer God's we're together Weather-wise It's such a lovely day Just say the words Acapulco Bay It's perfect For a flying honeymoon They say Come fly with me Let's fly Let's fly away Come fly with me Blast off Let's fly away Good night God bless you Thank you very much Well, all right. Uh, I guess I guess it was just James Darren singing there at the con, uh, which is great. Uh, very good to hear his voice again. Uh, our our friend from uh, who appeared on uh, as Vic Fontaine on Deep Space Nine. Anyway, uh, thanks for that, Mina. And if you get a chance, like I said, record some more for us and let us know what the rest of uh, Star Trek Star Trek Las Vegas was like this year. One of these times, one of these years, I will get there. Uh, it's. Uh, I think I'm, I'm more interested actually to go there than probably Comic Con. But no, nothing against Comic Con except it's so mad. It's a madhouse. It's a madhouse. Oh, that reminds me. But just before uh, I'll, I'll talk about this, I guess a little bit before I see uh, or see listen to Kenny's uh, second part to his Comic Con report. But I did see uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes the other night, a couple nights ago, Thursday. I think after work I went. Really good movie. I was really impressed. I think they did a great job. Uh, a few little cliches in it at times, but I, I think they kept it very serious, and they had some nice little touches from the Apes movies and series, and uh, even a couple other little nods to other movies in uh, in this film. So it's, it's very, very good. Very much worth, I think, seeing in the movie theater, too, because the Apes and the, the CGI work that they did with all that is just really amazing a very very lifelike very real uh, i'm not sure what team that did the effects for this film i think it's only about a 90 million dollar movie so you know i i know that sounds so you know like 90 million it's oh it's only a 90 million dollar movie but it, it they they did definitely a great job on that work i mean there was only a couple little points in the movie i thought it looked a little not quite real but i mean that's really minor for the most part it looked amazing the, the whole work with Caesar, who's the main ape, of course, and this you see in the previews, I'm not giving anything away. He is just very, very, you get emotionally attached and, and I think pretty involved with him as a character and his relationship with Will, who is the scientist guy played by James Franco and all that. So uh, I, if you are a, a fan of this kind of stuff and the Apes films, I wasn't a big fan of the Tim Burton remake from a, a few years back. But I do love the original movies, especially the first uh, first one, especially which I I do want to cover sometime uh, soon on the podcast. But Planet of the Apes fans, I'm sure, will go ape for <laughs> Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So check that out in movie theaters. And next week, next weekend, I think we get Conan, the new Conan movie, which I'm probably going to go see. I, I, I expect it not to be all that great. It kind of looks a little hokey in a way in the trailers. But I, I'm kind of a, a little bit of a 
uh, a sucker for for those kinds of films, sword and sorcery and and that and and things. Uh, and I and I love the first Conan movie with Arnold and and this one looks like there's a lot of cool action. And Jason uh, Momoa, who is that how you say his last name? He's a Hawaiian, I think, in in descent partly. Who was in uh, Game of Thrones? Uh, he is the Conan, uh, or play, the actor playing Conan in this. He was also, of course, on Stargate Atlantis as Ronan. So uh, he's he's been doing well for himself. Uh, so anyway, um, that's about it about the the movie stuff. And now here is Kenny talking uh, uh, about uh, Comic Con and his second piece, second part to his report from there. Thanks, Kenny, and take it away. Hey, Rico and Chuck's and Sci-Fi fans, this is Kenny from California. I'm the host of Knights of the Guild podcast, Epic Geek Out, MASH 4077, and Confessions of a Fanboy. Here is my part two of Comic-Con 2011. It was Friday, and Friday I decided I was going to dress up. Um, I was going to dress up as a hobbit on Friday and Saturday, and I was going to dress up in my Harry Potter robes on Sunday. I had made my Hobbit outfit. It took me months to make it. I made the pants, the shirt, I had suspenders, a pipe. I had the whole deal and then I had my friend Greg Aronowitz who is a a former special effects artist for like 20 years. He's worked on AI and Jurassic Park and Star Wars and uh, you name it. He's worked with George Lucas and Spielberg and all those guys but um, we're buddies. I met him on the uh, from the guild and he said he was gonna make me some Hobbit feet. So I was really excited to, to, to get those. I had not seen them because he was still working on them. They were like drying, I think. So I never had a chance to see them prior to uh, Friday. Then he was also making me my Hobbit ears. And then a friend was going to come over and cut my hair, my wig, because uh, I just I bought a wig and I couldn't get it to work properly for me. She was going to come over and uh, style it for me. So I got up early in the morning. Plus, we were doing a live podcast from a, a guild townhouse. A, a guildies were renting a townhouse and uh, they allowed us to have a little party there. So we were going to do a live podcast that night. So I got up super early, went shopping, got, you know, barbecue stuff and beer and soda and, and took all that over to the guildie townhouse and then kind of hung out there and I was waiting for everybody to show up. And, you know, they were all supposed to show up at 10, and then 10 came and went, and 11 came and went, and 12 came and went, and I was waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, I can't really get upset because they all did it, you know. I mean, Greg made the feat for free, and, you know, I'm sure it cost him money and time, and but um, they finally showed up probably around 2, 1.32 o'clock, uh, both of them actually, both uh, the person who was doing my hair and Greg. And uh, I saw the feet. They were incredible. He put on the ears. Uh, Leslie did the makeup to make sure the ears blended with my face. And um, I put all the clothes on. She cut the hair. And it was pretty, pretty epic. By that time, my brother had arrived. He was. This is his first Comic-Con. So he had come on a Friday to hang out. And it was pretty, pretty epic, the costume. I was really excited. Uh, I had not put on the feet yet. So we had to go back to my hotel, and I tried to slip on the feet, and I had the hardest time getting on those feet. I'd given Greg old shoes, old dress shoes of mine, and he formed the foot around the dress shoe, the prosthetic. It's a, like a just a plastic or a rubbery plastic, but he formed that around my 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 shoe. So I'd like slide, and then this, and he did part of a leg too, so it would go up into the pants, so it looked like it was. I mean, they were awesome looking. But they were very difficult to get into. And he had prior told he had told me get a shoehorn, and I'm like, nah, I can just slide my foot in. Yeah, that was a mistake. 
I should have got a shoehorn. So I struggled and struggled. I got my right foot in. It took me about 20 minutes to get my right foot in. And I couldn't get my left foot in. And I'm sweating and it's hot. And I'm in my Hobbit outfit. And, you know, it was not a good time. Um, let me just say that. And my brother and I ran out and tried to find uh, a local store that had a shoehorn. And finally, I think on our, like our fourth place, we found a Payless shoe store. And we're like, okay, well, they have to have shoe, shoehorns. So we got the shoehorn. I got my left foot on. And then finally got to Comic-Con probably around 3, 4 o'clock. I feel like I'd wasted most of my day. I was not in the best of mood. But as soon as I got my feet on, got everything looking good, I was hot and sweaty, but I didn't care. And I started walking the streets, and people started noticing, and I started getting pictures, and that started lifting my spirit. It was a lot of fun, because people were just so excited to see the outfit. They were really impressed with it. What's great is that, you know, I made the entire outfit except for the feet and the ears. People were so excited to see, you know, just the outfit. The Hobbit outfit was great. And then they'd notice my feet, and they'd go crazy. So it was kind of nice to know that people are appreciative of the outfit alone that I made. And then they, you know, the fee on top of it was just extra special. So um, I did that um, all the rest of Thursday, the rest of Friday was I walked around the floors and uh, people took pictures, took pictures. I took, I took pictures of people who were dressed up and then people took pictures of me. And it was a lot of fun. It was it's fun, you know, because people the reason you dress up is you want the attention. You want to get the pictures. You want to share your craft with these people. So it was a, it was really a nice feeling to know that they appreciated all the hard work I put into it. All the frustration I had earlier that day just flew out the window. It was like, this is why I did it. This is why my feet are going to kill me because I can't wear socks and I'm barefoot with, you know, within dress shoes and I'm going to be in these feet all day. And yeah, so um, it was pretty, pretty, pretty crazy, but it was a lot of fun. And then later in that day at seven o'clock when the, the hall closed, uh, a bunch of us went to the guild house to start setting up for the barbecue and I was going to do a live podcast, a live Knights of the Guild podcast. And we had one of the cast members, Vince Caso, who plays Blades. He was coming over. We had several other um, uh, web series people and uh, the party, it was it was fun. It was huge. You know, whenever you throw a party, you don't enjoy it as much because you're so concerned with everything and everyone and making sure everyone was happy and fed and drinking and make sure you had enough food and so that was my job. Plus, I was podcasting on top of it, and my co-host was nowhere to be found. I couldn't find her. Uh, come to find out later that she was upstairs sleeping. She fell asleep the entire time, and she missed the majority of the party um, and the and the podcast itself. But anyways, um, party was fun. It was successful. I invited like 30-something people, and then like 50-something showed up, and we had rock band, and there was good food, and everyone had a great time. We recorded a really good podcast. was very excited about it. Got back to the hotel around midnight, and I wasn't sure if I was going to take my feet off or my ears because I wouldn't be able to get them back on again. But I did opt to take off my feet because they were killing me. And of course, I had cuts and bruises and blisters and all that fun stuff. And um, that was only like six hours of wearing them. I can't imagine wearing them, you know, all day on Saturday. Um, as for my ears, I didn't want to remove them, so I took off all the makeup. And I wrapped a t-shirt around my head so I can sleep. So I didn't rip them off by mistake. Which worked because I woke up the next morning on Saturday and my ears were intact. I put on my clothes and with the shoehorn help it only took me about 20 minutes to get on the feet. And I was ready to go and went to Comic Con and that's what I did all day Saturday. I didn't do anything else but walk around the floor and take pictures and have pictures taken of me. That was the entire, entire day. It was just walking around and it was... So much fun. I was in pain. I was literally, my feet were just killing me. 
I, you know, I'd been in them from not, I was probably in them for almost 16 hours on Saturday. I did major damage to my feet. Uh, it'll, it'll take several, several weeks for my feet to recover, but, um, yeah, it was, um, very painful, but it was worth it. Like I said, it was fun seeing people's expression. I had a whole family. I mean, a husband, a wife, and two kids come up to me and talk to me about my feet and they wanted to touch them and see what they felt like. And I mean, I had so many strange conversations about my feet. It was pretty, pretty awesome. And then I found another group of Lord of the Rings uh, cosplayers, which was great. There was a, a Ringwraith, uh, the, the Witch King, actually, uh, Galadriel, and there were three Hobbits and a Frodo, I think. Yes, and then they grabbed me, and so I, I stood there, and I probably stood there for about 20 minutes as people, per, you know, person after person kept jumping up and wanting to take pictures of the group of us. So I still haven't found a picture of that group. Uh, hopefully I'll find it online somewhere. But it was a lot of fun. Did that. I got interviewed by little news people. I had cameras, you know, come in, take pictures of me and video of me. And it was, it was, it was fun and totally worth it. Uh, I had a great, great, great Saturday. Like I said, I didn't do it. I didn't buy anything. I didn't go on the floor. I just hung around in the lobbies and walked around and just took pictures. And occasionally friends would come and I'd hang out with friends. Uh, friends who were also in cosplay. So we'd get pictures taken of both of us or three of us. It was just a fun day. Just a fun day, period. I had so much fun that day. And then on Sunday, I my feet were killing me, and there was no way I was going to dress up this, that time. I was like, okay, two days was plenty. That's enough for me. Um, so I wasn't going to wear my Harry Potter outfit, because I was just going to... It was so hot, and I didn't want to have to wear the, the robes and such. So I opted just to go in street clothes. And I still wanted to buy stuff on the floor, and you can't really buy stuff if you're dressed up because people are constantly stopping you for photos and such, which they should because, I mean, that's why you dress up to be taken pictures of, um, so you shouldn't complain, but, you know, I opted not to dress up, and Sunday I pretty much spent hanging out with my friends and shopping. This time I actually went shopping and got some really cool stuff, and, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a pretty great day. And then we went out to dinner. When it closed, we went out to dinner, a group of us, and had a great steak dinner, and then we hit the road. But uh, before that, we, um, this is where it didn't uh, turn out so hot. But um, I parked underneath the convention center on the last day because I thought it would just be convenient to have my car underneath the convention center. But when I got back to it, I found out it had been broken into and I had lost. Um, they took my entire podcasting equipment bag. Um, so I'd lost almost about $3,000 worth of material of uh, equipment. My friend uh, Troy, who had gone, gone with me, they took his laptop. Uh, they took, and I don't know why, they left all my Hobbit stuff, they left all my Harry Potter stuff, except they took my wand, they took my GPS, they took um, various electronics, um, you know, they, the, another thing that really made me sick was they took all the things I had purchased at Comic-Con. So I, I purchased all this stuff, memorabilia, you know, the guild stuff, I had signed posters, uh, Team Unicorn stuff, I had signed posters, I bought another Jason Palmer print, because I'm a huge Jason Palmer fan and he does some beautiful art and he had this gorgeous star wars poster print that he had done um called the saga and i had purchased one of those and they took my entire poster tube that had all the stuff in it um so yeah so i was i was pretty sick to my stomach and i just gathered all my clothes because they were scattered all over the place uh threw them in and troy and i just kind of left it wasn't the the best way to end comic-con and it very it, it dampered my my spirits at the time and uh, drove home, dropped off Troy, got back on the freeway, and I got hit 
by another car. Um, they had rear-ended me, and as I was pulling over to the side to check damage and to ch exchange information, the person took off. So it was a hit and run. And luckily there was no damage to my Jeep, even though he hit me hard, my bumpers are metal, so they kind of absorbed all of the impact. So I was, I was fortunate, and I just wanted to get home and crawl into bed and end the day. So that's what I did, and um, I was very upset for the next few days, talked to the police in San Diego. But, you know, um, as I started blogging about the days and the, the day's events and I started posting pictures on Facebook, it brought back all the great memories. And I'm not going to let, you know, the, the theft hurt those memories. I still had a fantastic time. I spent time with great friends. I saw some great panels. I had the best time dressing up as a hobbit and having people take pictures of me. And I took over like 300 pictures of people in costume themselves. It was, a, it was a phenomenal experience, and unfortunately it had to end the way it did, but, you know, I still had a great time. Uh, I have to remind myself that, you know, it was just that small portion that was horrible, but everything else was, was great, and I loved every minute of it, and I can't wait to go back next year. Um, I just know, you know, not to uh, leave things in my Jeep. Um, you know, and, it, and it's not even the sad thing, is the electronic stuff can be replaced. That's... You know, it was $3,000, yes, it's a lot of money, but it can be replaced. It's it's the, it's the personal stuff. It's the, the autographed posters and pictures that I got. Um, it's those things that really hurt, you know, when people steal those things that are, that are irreplaceable. I cannot replace them. They're one of a kind. They're signed, you know, personal messages to, my, to myself, and they cannot be replaced. Um... Fortunately, Jason Palmer, and if you guys don't know who Jason Palmer is, definitely check him out, jasonpalmer.com. He's an incredible artist. I had contacted him, telling him of the incident, uh, and asking if I can purchase another Star Wars poster, because, I mean, I totally fell in love with this, this print that he did. He did it for Celebration 5. There were only a few made, um, and he only had a few left, but I had contacted him a few days after, uh, the theft and I'm like you know I told him what happened I'm like I really really love your print and I want to purchase another one is there any way I can purchase another one he was so gracious he emailed me back immediately and said you know what just send me your address I'll send you a replacement one and I'm like you don't have to do that he's like you know what because I am a huge fan of his and he I mean I know the guy uh, for several years now because I buy like two or three prints every year I go to Comic Con from him and I also help him out with the guild. He does guild prints uh, for conventions. And so I send him pictures of the guild cast because I have hundreds, probably thousands of pictures of the cast of the guild. So I send him that. So we become friends. But he was in, it was incredible that he's just like, yeah, go ahead. I mean, this isn't, this is, you know, this is a fairly hefty costing poster print. And um, he did send me two days later. I got a replacement one. It's gorgeous. I'm very excited about it. And, you know, uh, other uh, guildies and my Trucks and Sci-Fi family. Between the two of them, I've raised some money to help replace equipment that was stolen. Um, it's just, it's an incredible, incredible group of, of friends that I have. And you know they're there, you know, because, I mean, you talk to them all the time. But you don't really realize how much they appreciate you or how much they care about you until something like this happens and they step up. You know, I know economic times are hard right now, but they're still willing to donate a little bit of money to help me out to get me back up and podcasting again. Um, you know, because I lost so much stuff. And... 
it just, it's very touching and it's very appreciative and you know I think it it, it dulls the pain of losing all that stuff when uh, when you have friends and just listeners supportive you know and they're helping you out and they're taking care of you I had a great time it was a lot of fun and you can see pictures up on my Facebook page if you want to check them out. I threw some of them up at Trex and Sci-Fi. So if you join the Trex and Sci-Fi or if you're already a member, you can check out links to the, the Facebook pages with my hundreds of photos. And hopefully you guys enjoyed this report. And um, I'm sure I'll be bringing you another report from 2012. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks, Kenny. Thanks so much for your report. Uh, just, uh, you know, I, I, of course, heard about this uh, before you announced it here on the show. But, yeah, so sorry about your your problems with uh, your, your stuff being stolen and the, the theft out of the out of your vehicle there. Right under the convention center, too. That's uh, That just seems so shocking and surprising to me that, that somebody is as bold as that. You know, I, I always hate, frankly, leaving anything in my car. And uh, and I and I'm always kind of paranoid about that kind of stuff. Now, you know, the funny thing about it is, Kenny. In a long time ago, I got a radio taken out of a car. Uh, a long time ago, actually, it was parked right on uh, when I was dating Lynn. When I was dating my wife at the time, it was parked right on her on her driveway out of her house. And I was there one evening or something, and and we didn't hear anything. But uh, but yeah, I know how that you feel. Kind of uh, it really really makes you feel bad, and just it's just. Uh, it's just terrible. So um, I'm sorry about that. It sounds like you did have a good time and and, and, a, and a somewhat painful foot time, feet time with your costume. But I saw your pictures and it looked fantastic. So uh, good for you for dressing up. You know, I, 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 I haven't dressed up for a convention in a long time. I used to do that a long time ago, but I haven't done that. Maybe I need to do that. I keep toying with the idea of doing a Darth Vader outfit since I'm fairly tall and big. And I may have to pad it up a little bit. I'm a little thin on the thin side compared to Vader, but I, I think I could pull off a Vader better than some Vaders I've seen. Sometimes these guys who dress up as Darth Vader at, at, at conventions, you know, they're about five foot and about an extra, you know, uh, you know, let's just say that they're more of a round shape than Vader ever was. So I, I, I you know, that's the one costume I, I think I'd like to try someday. But, um, but anyway, Kenny, thanks so much for your report from Comic-Con. I really appreciate you taking the time to send last week's and this week's. Uh, well, you sent them both in last week, but I just split them up to to split up the time on the show. So thanks again, Kenny. I appreciate it very much. And now I'm going to take a short break, but while I play, or while I take the break, I'm going to take uh, that time to play the trailer. This is a little long. It kind of has a lot of the music for Forbidden Planet in it, but I wanted to play the trailer for you. Uh, for uh, the movie we're going to be covering for the rest of the podcast, basically, Forbidden Planet. So here you go with the trailer to this uh, 1956 classic sci-fi tale. as one of the crew of this faster-than-light spaceship of the future, sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. 
Sir, we're being radar scanned. United Planets Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Oh, Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair IV. Commander, if you sat down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. When you reach the Forbidden Planet, you will meet Dr. Morbius, played by Walter Pigeon. The doctor is sole owner of this fabulous world. Anne Francis is his alluring daughter, Alta, who has never seen a young man till she meets Commander Adams, played by talented Leslie Nielsen. Come on in. Didn't bring my bathing suit. What's a bathing suit? Oh, murder. You will meet a charming character in The Robot, able to produce, on order, 10 tons of lead or a slinky evening gown. Always at your service. It must be the loveliest, softest thing you've ever made for me. And fit in all the right places, with lots and lots of star sapphires. Star sapphires take a week to crystallize properly. Would diamond or emeralds do? You explore all the wonders of a vanished civilization. You travel deep down into the heart of the forbidden planet to discover the incredible marvels of this lost genius race. These magnificent scenes in striking Eastman color stagger the imagination. 20 miles. Look down, gentlemen, are you afraid? 7,800 levels. Yet the wonders of the planet Altair IV conceal a strange and evil force, unknown, irresistible. Forbidden Planet, a classic science fiction movie, probably, uh, you know, when when people talk about classic films and classic sci-fi films, this, this definitely usually makes the list. Other movies like 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, I'm trying to think of what else would show up, Alien, uh, you know, just... Just some classic movies, Close Encounters, uh, and and from the era of the 50s, keep in mind, uh, let's give you some, I guess, background to begin with. You know, the era of the 50s for, for films, sci-fi, were, were pretty, you know, schlocky. You know, big, giant, bug-eyed monsters, you know, attacking people on Earth, uh, alien invasions, um, you know, a few exceptions uh, to this, but a lot of things that didn't take themselves really super seriously and turned into kind of monster movies, basically. But Forbidden Planet is not like that at all. There is a monster in it, but it is not a uh, what I would call a monster movie. It's a very 
pretty thoughtful and, and serious science fiction film, and really the first uh, science fiction film that's set entirely in, in away from Earth, out, uh, in outer space. Even the early movies, you know, things like uh, in, in the 30s and the 40s of sci-fi type movies did not have that situation going on. They'd start on Earth and maybe launch from Earth to, you know, go somewhere or something would happen or there'd be a, something going on on Earth. You know, aliens would show up. Um, but uh, this is really the first movie that ever features uh, basically Earthmen out there exploring the galaxy and very much like Star Trek, of course, did week after week. Let's give you some, uh, again, background information. This uh, movie was, uh, it was released by uh, MGM. It's an MGM film, Metro a Golden Mayor. And it is, uh, did I say Goldwyn? Goldwyn, it's, or Goldman. I think I said Goldman. Let's try that again. Metro Goldwyn Mayor, an MGM film. The movie, again, came out first on April the 1st, 1956. It was only 96, uh, or 98, sorry, minutes long. And that was its running time. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, more later on, about the, the running time and the editing of this movie, because there are some things that are a little different, a little unusual about that. It was directed by a guy named Fred Wilcox, uh, produced by Nicholas uh, Nafak, I think is his name. Anyway, screenplay is by Cyril Hume. Uh, the story is by Irving Block and Alan Adler. Uh, it starred Walter Pidgeon, Le- Leslie Nielsen, and Anne Francis, and a lot of other actors like Earl Holloman and Richard Anderson, who was uh, Oscar Goldman on The Six Million Dollar Man, lots of other actors that you will recognize uh, from other things that had guested on other shows, uh, like things like Star Trek even, The Twilight Zone, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, definitely some familiar faces in this movie, some familiar younger faces that uh, we, we have seen through the years in other other areas. It, it's always been, uh, the Forbidden Planet's always been kind of compared loosely to Shakespeare's The Tempest, that uh, plot and, and similarities to that, that story of Shakespeare's is, is somewhat in this movie as well, and, and we'll be talking about that as we go through things. Uh, the special effects uh, are credited to, to a guy named Arnold Gillespie, uh, Irving Rice, and Wesley Miller. They were nominated for an Academy Award, actually. It was the only major award nomination this film has ever received, which is kind of a bit of a shame. Uh, it used, uh, it was the, uh, I think, I don't know if it was the first time this happened, but it was definitely one of the early times that it ever happened. But it has an all-electronic musical score. There's no real instruments used in this in the score of this movie, the music at all. They wanted to give it a very otherworldly sound, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the music and the soundtrack as we talk about the movie. But it, it definitely has that going for it. It's a very uh, different and, and I think it works very well for the film. You'll hear bits of that throughout the clips that I play. It, it also features a very expensive and very uh, well-known uh, prop, a, a very large prop, in the uh, character of Robbie the Robot, uh, a, a classic, very classic uh, robot that's been seen in, and of course, Forbidden Planet for the first time, and, and in other things like Lost in Space and other TV shows and, and films over the years. He pops up now and then. Uh, you can actually get a, uh, a full-size Robbie the Robot replica from a guy named Fred Barton, which is one of would be one of my dream props. You know, if I if I hit the lottery and won millions of dollars, you know, that'd be like my first purchase, or maybe not my first purchase, but it would be definitely <laughs> a, 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 an early purchase. I think they're like 
Uh, the last time I think I looked just for the kick of it or for the fun of it, I think they're like twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars. Maybe twenty-five. I think twenty-five thousand dollars. You know, basically the price of a, like a good car is for. Uh, I mean, it completely does everything that Robbie does in the movie. I don't think it really walks, but it, it does all the sounds. It looks exactly like it, and it, it's just an amazing replica. So, for those with an extra, you know, you know, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars laying around, search for Fred barton robbie the robot online and you'll you'll get directed to his website um what else let's see i guess the original actually robbie the robot is in uh is does belong to someone is still around i was i I was looking over some of the background here uh, on the movie before i started recording i was trying to find the guy's name but there is a guy that owns i think the original it's probably been uh cleaned up and upgraded uh so uh it's uh but it, it is still out and, and out there, the, the original Robbie. So that's kind of a cool thing. Uh, it was also made for a pretty small budget at the time. It was uh, only a, uh, almost a $5 million, $4.9 million to make Forbidden Planet. Uh, in its uh, box office release, uh, which was you know in the 50s, the late 50s primarily, I think it's popped up in, in unique, uh, you know, playhouses and, and, and little movie houses over the years. But the main release only got back in, uh, well, it, it did okay, I guess, twenty, almost twenty-four million. So if it made for made for five million and it, and it you know, made almost uh, five times what it what it was, you know, what it cost. I guess these days, if a movie was made for a hundred million and it made five hundred million, that'd be a pretty big success. So I guess it was pretty successful at the time. And I, there are other references to that that audiences really, really love this movie when it was first released in theaters. So uh, the basic plot and premise of the movie, I'll, I'll just tell you that, and then I'm going to play like the first clip. Uh, it, it follows the this uh, the crew of uh, this ship called it's um, a space cruiser C fifty seven dash D. It's a very cool uh, model, and and the the cool thing about the the ship that the the people from Earth uh, this. Uh, this group of uh, explorers travels in is it looks like a flying saucer. So I always thought it was a really cool idea and a cool thing that instead of aliens who invade Earth and come here, come in flying saucers, that uh, we actually take that design and that look and build a ship out of it. And when you think about it, the Enterprise, you know, from Star Trek, the, the primary hull, the main hull, is basically a flying saucer. You know, and then you add the secondary hull and the engines and all that. But if you look at just the, the primary hull... Uh, and and this you can see pretty clearly, especially in you know the uh, Star Trek Generations when they detach and they crash on the planet. It's it's basically a big flying saucer. So uh, you know that design uh, for the ship I think is is a, a really neat, cool idea and kind of fun in a way that you, especially when the movie first starts out, that's what you see. You see this flying saucer going across the screen and you think, ooh, what what kind of weird aliens are on that ship? And it's not weird aliens. It's it's just people like us pretty much. So I will play the first clip that I gathered. I think I got about eight or nine clips that I got. This one is uh, they're approaching uh, Altair 4, which is the planet they're going to, going to explore. Well, not really explore, but they're there to visit uh, the, the, a ship that went there years before, much like the Enterprise would do from uh, on occasion, go check on a planet that people had colonized or whatever. So here is uh, the first clip or the second one, if you count the trailer, to Forbidden Planet as they're approaching and landing on Altair 4. Spaceship, identify yourself. You're being tracked. Cut me in. United Planets Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Who? 
Edward Morbius. Yeah, here it is. Morbius E, PhD, Lit D Expedition Philologist. Philologist? What do you wish here, Cruiser? Well, you, you don't understand, sir. We're your relief. We're very glad to find you alive. I, of course, appreciate your concern, but absolutely no assistance of any sort is required. Well, the red carpet treatment, huh? Oh, Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair IV. Let me repeat, I'm in no sort of difficulty here. Your best procedure will be to turn back at once without landing. Sorry, sir. Commander, if you set down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. If you'll just supply me with landing coordinates. Dr. Morbius, I require landing coordinates. Very well, but I wash my hands of all responsibility. You have uh, standard charts? Yes, sir. You may come in at 83, 17, 4 north, 148, 21 west. Thank you. Yeah, so the, the crew of the ship uh, with the commander, uh, Commander Adams, played by Leslie Nielsen, is, uh, you know, Morbius, who is the, the gentleman that they meet on Altair IV, is, is trying to warn them off and is saying it's dangerous, don't, don't come here, don't land here, we don't need you, go away, kind of a thing. But, of course, you know, their orders are to investigate and see what happens to this, this ship, uh, the Bellerophon, uh, that uh, went there 20 years before. And the uh, so they land, and uh, after they land, they are greeted by uh, kind of an unusual uh, uh, character. And this is where we get to first meet Robbie the robot. He he shows up. He zooms up in his little Robbie car, and uh, then he introduces himself to uh, Commander Adams and, and some of the other crew that are out there outside the ship. Unlike on Star Trek, you know this ship, uh, the the C fifty seven D. Uh, actually lands on the planet. They land, they have these little stairways that come down, kind of like the Lost in Space, uh, the Jupiter 2, uh, the flying saucer-like ship there, would land on planets, drop its landing gear, and, and walk down. You know, on Trek, uh, Gene Roddenberry always had this idea and thought that, well, it, it was much quicker and more convenient for TV and for the stories if they didn't have to do that week after week. It also would cost money. They could reuse special effects shots, but why go through all the hassle of having the ship having to land each week after week? They, that's where they invented basically this idea of beaming down to the planet. They just walk into a little transporter beam, uh, you know, into the transporter room, hop up there in the pad, push the little buttons, and then bang, they're into the action on the planet. But in this case, the, the ship actually lands on Altair IV. So Robbie comes out to uh, greet them uh, as, uh, as they get out of their ship. Welcome to Altair IV, gentlemen. I am to transport you to the residence. If you do not speak English, I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and sub-tongues. Colloquial English will do fine, thank you. Uh, this is uh, no offense, but you are a robot, aren't you? That is correct, sir. For your convenience, I am monitored to respond to the name Robbie. Nice climate you have here. High oxygen content. I rarely use it myself, sir. It promotes rust. Hey, Doc, is it a, is it a male or a female? In 
my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Will you get in, gentlemen? Yeah, I really like the, the character and the look of Robbie here. Very, very cool looking. He cost about 125000 very expensive uh, at the time for a single prop for a film. Uh, he was both electronically controlled, uh, and he, they also used a, a, a crane uh, for parts of things when he had to move around and stuff for this movie. Robbie also later starred in some other things, like I mentioned earlier, like um, a movie called The Invisible Boy uh, and other TV series and films. It's uh, He's a great, uh, great addition to this movie, and I like the fact that he doesn't... Uh, and. I'm going to be talking about this movie in depth. It's been out for a, a long time, you know, over 50 years. So though there will definitely be spoilers ahead. But uh, I was going to say, Robbie doesn't uh, ever tr- basically go on a, a rampage. You know, you have a robot that uh, sort of follows the traditional kind of Isaac Asimov, uh, Asimov's laws of robotics. In other words, he can't hurt anyone. So it's not like he malfunctions and goes on a rampage and starts killing the, the crew of the ship or anything like that. And I like that. I like the fact that he is a, a trustworthy servant and, and helper for Morbius and then later for, you know, helps out the crew in, in different circumstances during this uh, this movie. And it's uh, it's a nice, refreshing thing that you don't have this strange, you know, mechanical man here that, that you know, goes bad on them. I, I like that. And that uh, leads us to the next clip that I wanted to play. This one is talking uh, with, uh, when Morbius, basically the 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 three uh, people from the the ship uh, commander adams the doctor and his i guess is his, sort of his first officer go uh to see morbius they're talking to him a little bit and then they meet up with and, and talk more about robbie and uh morbius has explained to them you know he's basically the only one left uh, more or less of this crew of the ship that came here 20 years before he and his wife were at least so um but this next clip here is them talking about uh, the uh, the ro- the robot and and Robbie and and what he's capable of and not capable of. So listen to this. Activate the disposal unit. A household disintegrator beam. Put your arm in there. Order canceled. Don't uh, attribute feeling to him, gentlemen. Robbie is simply a tool. Tremendously strong, of course. He could quite easily topple this house off its foundation. In the wrong hands, mightn't such a tool become a deadly weapon? No, Doctor. Not even though I were the mad scientist of the tape thrillers. Because, you see, there happens to be a built-in safety factor. Commander, may I borrow that formidable-looking sidearm of yours? Thank you. Robbie, point this thing at that Althea Frutex out there on the terrace. Fire. You understand the mechanism? Yes, Morbius. A simple blaster. All right. Now turn around here. Point it at the commander. Aim right between the eyes. Fire. 
see, he's helpless. Locked in a sub-electronic dilemma between my direct orders and his basic inhibitions against harming rational beings. Cancelled. If I were to allow that to continue, he would blow every circuit in his body. Doctor, how did you come by such a mechanism? Uh, I didn't come by him, uh, Doctor. I tinkered him together during my first months up here. Coffee is ready, sir. Yeah, so the the you know the character of Robbie cannot harm uh, he, uh, other you know people can't harm anyone even if he's given an order to do that he he can't uh, carry that out it basically it'll it'll short him out and malfunction and, and that again I, I like that point of this movie I like the fact that he is loyal to to people and will protect them even at the the cost of his own uh, safety and welfare uh, I also wanted to say that when this movie was first released back in in uh, 1956. That uh, they had out at Grauman's Chinese Theater there, out in uh, California, which has been around for a long time. They had Robbie the robot, the prop, the prop from the movie, there on display when they did that, and uh, it ran uh, every day uh, throughout uh, through September. So this movie was very popular. Uh, I, I I knew it was pretty popular. I didn't quite realize it was that popular. You know, almost like Star Wars. How how well Star Wars the original movie did when it first released it. You know, this movie came out in. April, uh, the beginning of April, and ran through September, at least at that theater, playing every day. Also, there was a re-release of this movie in uh, in the early 70s as sort of a kiddie matinee feature for MGM uh, with a, a few more minutes, like about six minutes of additional footage. And you can find some of this additional footage and deleted scenes on at least the, I know the Blu-ray that I was watching earlier has them. Uh, it is uh, There are probably previous releases of this on DVD. I have a DVD of it also, too. I don't know if all the same deleted scenes are on both, but whatever version's out there. And these days, if you want to get something, you know, get the Blu-ray. I think the Blu-ray quality for this movie... Uh, is is pretty good. I think it holds up pretty well. Uh, it's uh, it's definitely nice to see it in, in higher res. I don't think there's too much graininess, maybe a little bit. I'm not really that much of an expert and and uh, in terms of you know which you know is the, is this a good transfer to Blu-ray or a bad transfer? I think it looks better than watching it on DVD. So you you know you've got that at least. Some people are are and there are plenty of sites. There are plenty of DVD, Blu-ray uh, review sites out there on the internet that I'm trying to think of a couple that I've checked before. I can't think of the names of them, but just do a search uh, and that review things and, and go into real detail. And they'll, they'll have capture screenshots of, of each, and, and they'll go into re- real detail about whether they think a Blu-ray is a good transfer or not. The, the surprising thing when I've looked over those at times is that even newer movies, even movies of the last, say, five or ten years, sometimes you'll have... Uh, a bad transfer to Blu-ray that they say is not a very good job. And that's, to me, kind of surprising because those movies should look darn good. You know, there should be no question and and there should be no weird, you know, artifacts or graininess or anything when you do that. So um, it some of it depends on a lot of things, the kind of equipment that they're using when they film the movie, of course, uh, and, and so forth. But anyway, I think the Blu-ray of this looks, looks really good. Is it the best Blu-ray I've ever seen? Have they done, you know, the best job they could? I would say not. It's uh, it's good and 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 definitely preferable over the DVD. So, uh, so where are we at in the story? Let's getting back to that. 
there is, uh, you know, they've met up with uh, Robbie, they've met up with Morbius, and now they're going to meet, uh, surprisingly, there's one other uh, uh, person who has been living on Altair 4, and her name, uh, appropriately, is, is, is Altera, or Alta for short. So, and she is played by Anne Francis, a very, very young Anne Francis. Not quite sure how old she was here. I think she was probably barely like 20. And she wears these very short little <laughs> skirts. She wears little outfits in this movie that remind me of the the outfits that uh, uh, they wore in the women wore in uh, Logan's Run. These very one piece little little uh, you know skirts, very very short skirts and, and uh, mini mini skirts, I guess you would say it. And uh, anyway, here is Anne Francis uh, when they meet up with her as uh, Alta. Alta. Alta, I specifically asked you not to join us for lunch. But, Father, lunch is over. I'm sure you never said a word about not coming in for coffee. Well, did you or did you? Uh, this is uh, Commander Adams, Dr. Ostro, and uh, Lieutenant uh, Farmer, my daughter. How do you do? I've always so terribly wanted to meet a young man, and now three of them at once. That's very kind of you. You're lovely, Doc. The two end ones are unbelievable. Could this end one get you some coffee? Oh, I'm quite able to get it. Thank you. Thank you. Of course, you uh, must make allowances for my daughter, gentlemen. She's uh, never known any human being except her father. I hope you'll make allowances too, sir. We young men have been shut up in hyperspace for well over a year now. And right from here, the view looks just like heaven. Sugar? But you keep helping me. After all, you're not Robbie. <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind being Robbie in certain ways. Uh, that's only in certain ways, of course. I can see that was probably very clever, but I don't seem to understand it. Well, there's, uh, there's no rush. Yes, I, uh, I suppose one day I shall be obliged to make the trip to Earth with her for the uh, sake of her natural development. I should say fairly soon, too. I like uh, the character of Alta in this movie. Uh, Anne Francis does a great job with that role. Uh, she has to be sort of innocent, but although she quickly kind of changes that a little bit when she starts to... Uh, Notice the men of, of the of the ship that have come to visit them. And she's only had basically her father around and Robbie uh, until that point. Uh, there are some animals and things like that uh, that are around their um, their home. Uh, but, uh, you know, she hasn't really had a lot of interactions with other people. And, and that innocence kind of shows. And, and she does a good job. I guess she was, I looked up while I was playing the clip, uh, she was about 25 when this movie was filmed, so not quite as young as I would have thought. Uh, she, I think she, she definitely looks like a young 25, and she just Anne Francis passed away in early 2011. So, uh, but she was, it looks like she was about 81 at the time. So, uh, but this is probably, I would say her her best known role. Really, this this definitely put her on on the map and and, and led to a lot of other things, but. For most people, I think, especially geeks like us, when you think of Anne Francis as an actress from the early, uh, you know, from those times, this is the movie that she's really best probably remembered and known for. So, 
next up, now, now uh, the studio, this, like I said, is a fairly serious, straightforward kind of a uh, adventure science fiction film, but the studio kind of wanted a few little fun moments thrown in, too. And one of those things, and I, I think this is okay, I'm all right with them doing that, one of the things that they throw in is the 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 cook or cookie I think he's called sometimes in the movie played by Earl Holloman who uh, was on uh, you know numerous TV shows especially in the 70s uh, is she you know he's uh, he's the cook of the of the crew of the ship and he he meets up with Robbie and, and it, it is kind of taken with him and kind of takes Robbie off to the side at one point and uh, asks him to make him some alcohol he's running out of hooch to uh, as he says to cook with just to cook with of course so uh, listen listen to this clip and it's a fun little moment between between Robbie the robot and, and cook can I be of service sir look never mind the sir mister but I'm a stranger in this so-called planet. I was just wondering if, well, if you could tell me where I could, uh, I could get a hold of some of the real stuff. Real stuff? Uh, just for cooking purposes, you understand. I take a big pride in my duties. Pardon me, sir. Stuff? Oh. <laughs> just about one jolt left. Oh, genuine ancient rocket bourbon. See here? Hey! Well, you low-living contraption, I ought to take a can opener to you. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Yes, relatively simple alcohol molecules with traces of fusel oil. Would 60 gallons be sufficient? Gallons? Mister, I've been from here to there in this galaxy, and I just want you to know you're, you're the most understanding soul I ever met up with. Ow! Yeah, so uh, so Cookie asks Robbie to get him, make him some alcohol, and uh, Robbie eventually com- complies, you know, and uh, brings it out to him later in the movie, and, you know, 60 gallons enough, sir? <laughs> 60 gallons. Oh boy, but uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a fun moment, and and I like it. Uh, the uh, the guy I was talking about earlier, you know, you, the main three that always deal with Morph- uh, Morbius in this movie and everything. I was about to say Morpheus, who is in Matrix, not Morbius, who is in the Forbidden Planet or Forbidden Planet, uh, played by uh, Walter Pigeon. Uh, the three guys, it's it's the Doc, Doc Ostro, who's played by Warren Stevens. It's Commander Adams, of course, played by Leslie Nielsen. And uh, the uh, the other guy is uh, Jack Kelly, is, is the actor's name. And he plays uh, Jerry or Lieutenant Jerry Farman. He's the pilot of the ship. So I don't know if he's necessarily the first officer. I'm not sure if that really comes out. He's just a lieutenant, so probably not. But uh, anyway, those are the uh, the characters. Richard Anderson is the the engineer of the ship, Lieutenant Quinn, uh, and, and there are some other minor characters too. What starts to happen, and uh, what you get to find out, and I don't have a clip for it, is the uh, Morbius shows uh, shows the uh, the captain of of the of the ship, uh, Leslie uh, Leslie Nielsen's character and uh he they show the in the other uh the main three they show him this this huge huge machinery and generator and, and equipment that that this long dead civilization that used to live on this planet called the krell uh built 
and, and it's just amazing and, and the effects here while while of course looking dated are pretty pretty cool looking and this this equipment goes miles miles down into the planet and and just in every direction and, and it's it's super you know massive and huge and they also are are shown this this piece of equipment called sort of this little learning device and at first the you know the character of Morbius uh, tells them that this is just something that that the kids of the Krell would use to both test their intelligence levels and, and to practice with and do different things. They could create these sort of little holographic projections and stuff like that of uh, Morbius, I think, creates a, a little mini version of, of his daughter of, of Alta at one point. And, and they basically learn there used to be this huge civilization. They built all this stuff, and they, they're gone now. They're, they're all dead and gone, and, and they don't really get told or know what exactly happened to them. And kind of after this, there is this creature that starts to attack the crew of the of the ship that has landed there. And remember that uh, Morbius had told them to stay away, that they would be in danger. And they set up a perimeter around the ship and, and this force field, and they have guns and lasers and all these things out there. And uh, they have a cool little prop blaster, uh, those blasters that Robbie was was told to shoot the commander with. Uh, at one point uh, are, are very cool, a cool prop, definitely something I need to still get sometime. But uh, getting back to the story, this creature tries to um, attack the ship and, and it, it is sort of stopped, but just seems to just disappear and leave. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be talking more about that here in a few moments, but the next clip I was trying to set that up is just after the attack, and I think it's between uh, the doctor and the commander talking about what just happened. Was our main battery stopped at? You believe that? No, it just went away for some reason. It'll be back. Doc, an invisible being that cannot be disintegrated by atomic fission. Oh, Skipper, that is a scientific impossibility. Hypnotic illusions don't tear people apart. That's true enough. But any organism dense enough to survive three billion electron volts would have to be made of solid nuclear material. Would it sink of its own weight to the center of this planet? Well, you saw it yourself, standing right there in those neutron beams. Well, there's your answer. It must have been renewing its molecular structure from one microsecond to the next. Wilson! Aye, sir. I want the tractor. So now we just pick up the girl and her father, whether they like it or not, huh? Section 86A, evacuate all civilians from disaster areas. You left out two very important words, where feasible. Now, if you remember the Bellerophon expedition, the ship was vaporized trying to lift off. Which makes it a guilt-edged priority that one of us gets into that Krell lab and takes that brain boost. Yeah, that uh, it's pretty cool, the this, this sequence of this weird creature standing kind of on two legs uh, and... and clawing at the force field and everything like that these animated sequences of the creature this this monster that's attacking uh, was done by a guy named joshua medor medor he was um he was actually a guy that worked at disney and kind of got loaned out to mgm to do some work on this uh and uh there's a the the funny thing about it is if you look really closely in scenes maybe you'll be able to just see them on the blu-ray but the creature actually has just this small little bit of a goatee on it, the creature itself, the monster that's attacking. 
and uh, Morbius, of course, also has a goatee in this movie. So, in you know, maybe in a movie theater, you would have noticed that. Well, that's weird. You know, there's a little similarity. It's 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 pretty minor, but you got to look really closely for it. But it, you can see that, and that leads you to. And, and what the next clip is going to kind of describe a little bit more. What it turns out this creature is, is that Morbius's mind and, and it had been sort of expanded and by this uh, hooking up to this learning machine. And uh, this monster that's been created is actually his id, his sort of inner thoughts, inner demons coming out and becoming reality. And uh, there are other things that happen in this movie. These other little animals even and stuff that you see in this movie are supposed to be really uh, figments and, and creations of Morbius's mind. And I think there was supposedly a deleted scene around where the doctor, I think, examines one of these creatures that, that's that been killed and realizes the in, insides of it are not normal at all. They don't m- make sense. And so that leads them to believe something's weird, that these creatures are not natural and and normal and uh and again the this id monster as it's known by uh, over the years this big uh big beast that's been attacking is is just sort of the the unconscious mind of morbius uh coming out to play and he basically didn't want to return and leave the planet and so his creature came out 20 years prior and, and basically whacked off and killed the rest of the, the, the crew of the Bellerophon that came to the planet with them to Altair IV to, in order for his wife and, and, and him to, to be there in peace. And uh, then he doesn't really realize it, and he doesn't want to admit it to himself. Like a lot of people won't admit that they have sort of a dark side. Uh, but uh, Morbius doesn't want to re- admit that this creature is, is, uh, is of his own mind and his own creation. And it, it, it takes, to, at the very end, uh, Adams is sort of trying to get through to him, and El, Elta sort of falls in love and, and becomes attracted to Commander Adams and is sort of defying her father, just like all good, you know, children and daughters and, and sons do eventually. And so that makes him upset, and so this creature comes to sort of attack at Morbius's home itself. And the next clip, I think, describes some of that, so listen to that. my study. You still refuse to face the truth. What truth? Morbius, that thing out there. It's you. You're insane. How else would you have landed here where Alta must see you torn to pieces? You still think she's immune? She's joined herself to me, body and soul. Yes, and whatever comes forever. Say it's a lie. Shout, let it hear you out there. Tell it you don't love this man. Not even if I could. Stop it, Robbie. Don't let it in. Kill it, Robbie. It's no use. He knows it's your other self. Yeah, so, uh, you know, he doesn't want to admit things uh, about what's going on here to himself, and the, this creature's busting into the place, and uh, eventually it's um, it comes out, and, and he starts to understand what's going on, 
And then there's a, a next clip, kind of not too long past that last scene and clip that I played for you, is more of, uh, I think, Morbius and, and Commander Adams talking about what has happened and, and why all this thing is going on and what's going on with this creature and where it came from. We've got to listen. We don't have much time. Here. Here's where your mind was artificially enlarged. Consciously, it still lacked the power to operate the great machine, but your subconscious had been made strong enough. I won't hear you. You've got to listen. Twenty years ago, when your comrades voted to return to Earth, you sent your secret id out to murder them. Not quite realizing it, of course, except maybe in your dreams. What man can remember his own dream? At least when our ship was approaching from space, you remembered enough to warn us off. But then, when you thought we were threatening your little egomaniac empire, your subconscious sent its id monster out again. More deaths, Morbius. More murder. And now this, too, harm my own daughter. But now she's defying you, Morbius. And even in you, the loving father, there still exists the mindless primitive. More enraged and more inflamed with each new frustration. So now you're whistling up your monster again to punish her for her disloyalty and disobedience. And if you don't do something about it soon, Morbius, it's going to be coming right through that door. Solid Prell metal, 26 inches thick. Look at your gauges. Look. That machine is going to supply your monster with whatever amount of power it requires to reach us. Look now! Yeah, so uh, I, Morbius, I think, eventually gets convinced, and, and he sort of... Uh, it's a little hard to, to know exactly how what happens here, but Morbius kind of approaches where the creature is, and, and, and I think his mind sort of overwhelms him is, is the way I have always thought about it. And, and he confronts the creature, and it, and it sort of somehow either physically or mentally uh, kills him and destroys him. It's kind of interesting to note that in the original idea or one of the original uh, ways this was going to go, the original uh, screenplay and story, uh, that uh, it was going to uh, take place in the future. They were going to give a year like the year it was going to be like 1976, and it was supposed to take place on the planet Mercury. And actually, uh, the, they when they retrieved, uh, they had some different names for people. The expedition then was headed by a guy named John Grant, and they were sent to retrieve Dr. Adams, uh, which is kind of because you use the name Commander Adams is what ends up, and his daughter, which is which is similar, but her his daughter's name is Dorian. But what I was going to say that they've uh, been stranded there. The plot is pretty similar, but the difference, the ending is different primarily in the fact that the the commander of that mission is able to rescue both uh, the the scientist guy that's on the planet and his daughter. They get away okay. But in this, uh, I think it's more dramatic and more interesting that Morbius actually dies in in stopping this creature of his and uh, and. Elta and and leaves with the commander leaves on the the ship along with Robbie too they grab Robbie even though it looks like he kind of shorted himself out but maybe they fixed him so he's kind of flying the ship and they zoom away to get away because uh, at the you know is in his dying words uh, Morbius uh, has them destroy basically the the whole Krell equipment machinery stuff which basically wipes out the planet and maybe even the whole solar system because as they're 
they're millions of miles out in space. There's a big burst of light as they look out the viewport at uh, at uh, Altair Four, and uh, I'd say that wiped out the the whole system when he blew up that machinery. So uh, no one's coming back and going to mess with that machine anytime soon. So here's the last clip to uh, Forbidden Planet that I have for you. That's Altair Four, the bright speck below the star. Fifteen seconds. Yes, Alter, your father, my shipmates, all the stored knowledge of the Krell. Five seconds, four, three, two, one. years from now, the human race will have crawled up to where the Krell stood in their great moment of triumph and tragedy. Your father's name will shine again, like a beacon in the galaxy. It's true, it will remind us that we are, after all, not God. All right, so uh, that's it for the clips uh, and my look at mostly at Forbidden Planet. Uh, I've tried to give you some uh, information on the story and some background things. Uh, I think it's a, it's just a great movie. I think there's uh, lots of things that make it so fun to watch, uh, you know, again and again. Uh, it's, uh, it's really, uh, I think, a good, uh, good job with this. The soundtrack is very cool. There is, uh, I believe you can get a, uh, a, a CD. There was an LP out, and I think it's out on CD. Yeah, and uh, I think 70, or sorry, uh, yeah, there's a CD that came out in, looks like 1986, uh, so for the film's 30th anniversary. Uh, and it's got about 23 tracks on the musical CD. Uh, talking a little bit about the Star Trek influence, uh, definitely... Uh, there are Gene Ronberry was uh, wrote numerous times and talked about in interviews that that there was a lot of inspiration for Star Trek in Forbidden Planet. This idea of a of this you know group of um, you know federation of uh, people or 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 just this star fleet out there that was cruising the galaxy you know going on missions is a real big part of what Star Trek was all about, of course. And there are also other little things that even show up in Doctor Who uh, and from Forbidden Planet. And it's got a lot of, you know, it it constantly gets referenced in other things. Uh, Robbie the Robot shows up in a lot of different things. So if you consider yourself a geek and a sci-fi fan and you've never, never, never seen Forbidden Planet... I urge you strongly to check this classic sci-fi movie out. I didn't look before I started to see if it's on Netflix streaming, but I'd be surprised if it's not. Another little thing that I thought was kind of cool was that since this was an MGM movie, you know, this this movie was filmed entirely on sound stages, and the same sound stages actually that they filmed The Wizard of Oz, uh, and uh, it's it's kind of a cool little thing, even though that was about 
15, I guess about 15 years earlier, uh, the difference in time between Forbidden Planet of the Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz is in the late 30s, and this was in done in about 55, 56 films. So uh, great movie. Uh, and, uh, oh, I want to talk one last thing, I guess, about the editing of it. Uh, there are some pretty quick cuts in this movie, some things that seem a little strange in that. What happened was, I guess from what I've learned and read in a couple different places, is that the the movie was screened for test audiences, which is nothing unusual. But the test audiences really, really went for it and loved it, and they had it in sort of what you know a, a semi rough cut stage at that point. But what happened? The, the studio thought, well, if the if the audiences are digging it and liking it the way it is right now, let's just leave it alone. So that's what they did, and that's why there are some deleted scenes. They have some scenes that are that will add a little bit more to scenes you're used to seeing in the movie, like Robbie taking them to see Morbius in his little Robbie car and all that. Uh, there's there's more to that. There was this idea that Robbie was going to uh, speak different languages. You'll hear in the deleted scenes a different actor doing the voice for Robbie at different points. So lots of cool extra stuff there on, on some of the extras that are on the Blu-ray and other versions that have been released of this film. Now I want to play, uh, but I love it. It's a, it's a great movie, great, uh, and I try to watch it every now and then. Just It's a fun movie. Grab some popcorn and sit down and watch a cool uh, classic sci-fi tale. I'm going to play, uh, we've got a couple of comments about the movie. Mark first and his comments on Forbidden Planet. Hey Rico, this is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest. And I'm M5 on the Treks and Sci-Fi board. And this is my comment for Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet is my favorite all-time classic sci-fi movie followed closely by this island earth but that's another story anyway forbidden planet i have watched that movie i can't even begin to tell you how many times i've watched that movie i've watched that movie since i was eight or nine years old and i love it i love the way it looks i love the background paintings that they use for altair 4 and the paintings they use for the great machine and the paintings they use for uh around Dr. Morbius's house. I like the way Dr. Morbius' house looks. It's just a great movie. I mean, if you haven't seen it, you need to watch this movie because it's awesome. Uh, the cast of the movie is Walter Pidgeon as Dr. Morbius, uh, Leslie Nielsen as Doc, uh, Captain J.J. Adams. Uh, you got Anne Francis as Altera. Uh, you have Jack Kelly as the exec. Um, You've got Warren Stevens as the doctor, and then um, Richard Anderson as the uh, chief engineering officer. You, you might remember him from a little show called The Six Million Dollar Man. He was Oscar Goldman. And then uh, there was Earl Holloman. He was the cook. Good guy. I like him. And of course, Robbie the Robot. I loved Robbie the Robot when I was a kid. When I seen in the movie that he could make all that rocket booze for the cook, my thought was, if I had Robbie, man, I'd have him make me all kind of candy. You know, like now and laters and red hots and hot tamales and lemon heads. Whew. That's what I wanted Robbie to make for me. Anyway, I love the storyline. Um, I won't go into it. I don't want to. There might be spoilers for some that have never seen this movie. And if you haven't, I encourage you to go watch it. Um, a little trivia. Uh, the uniforms that the uh, crew of the uh, saucer used... Well, they were reused in another sci-fi movie from the 50s called Queen of Outer Space with Jaja Kabor. It's a B-movie. Watch it if you get a chance. And the spaceship itself was reused 
in a few episodes of the Twilight Zone. One of my favorite episodes that you could see it in is To Serve Man. Awesome episode. Um, I've, there's been rumors about uh, a remake of this movie. I really, this movie doesn't need to be remade. I like it just the way it is. I, I mean, don't touch it. Don't touch it. It's, it's, it's perfect the way it is. And uh, I think that's it for my comments this week, Rico. I'd like you to thank, I'd like to thank you for uh, reviewing this movie. And take care. Bye bye. Marco, so great to uh, hear from you, and I'm glad you love this movie. Yeah, I'm a big fan too. Uh, I, like you, like I've said throughout the talking about it, it's it's just a classic. It's a great sci-fi film. It's a great story. The cast is fantastic. The look is cool. It has that. Very kind of retro look, but I, you know, I don't like to call it even dated. I think it, you know, they don't, um, they, they do things kind of the right way. One of the things, and I didn't mention this as I was talking about the sh- the the movie at all, but one of the cool things that I liked the, the little idea that they did in this movie that was kind of different is when they when they come out of like faster than light speed. I think it is in the at the beginning of the movie, they have to go in these sort of like uh, little chambers to kind of uh, hold them in in place or whatever they call it. It's it, it has to do with you know, changing from faster than light to normal speed. And, and I like the concept that, that you know, that, that the people aboard the ship may have to do something, you know, they might have to do something like that. Of course, they ignored all that on trek with inertial damper dampeners and, and things. But it's just a kind of an added little thing. It was, you know, like Trek use transporters this this time on Forbidden Planet. They land on the on the planets themselves. So, But, yeah, thanks for, for your comments, Mark. And, and we've got one more comment on Forbidden Planet, and that is from Darmok. Uh, and thanks uh, for sending that in, and here it is. Hey, everyone. This is Darmok. It's a rainy night in New Jersey. And I am so psyched to talk about the 1950s classic, Forbidden Planet. Now, before I had actually seen Forbidden Planet, the movie, I had seen Robbie the Robot as a child in the 60s. He was on dramatic shows, he was guesting on variety shows, and he really seemed like a real character to me. Him along with his little brother, the robot from Lost in Space, there was just something about them that seemed very real to me, as opposed to the robots I used to laugh at from the 30s in the Buck Rogers and Crash Corrigan serials. They really stood out as great examples of industrial design. Which brings me to Forbidden Planet the movie. Its art direction was very influential. You could see traces of it in the Star Trek pilot, The Cage, where the captain's quarters, come on, you look around there, that's Forbidden Planet all over the place. It was also influential, I think it informed the design of the time tunnel. When you really look at, not the time tunnel itself, But when you look at the time tunnel complex, it resembles the Krell complex and in how they uh, approached the art direction to show how vast the complex was. Now, for me, of the movies in the 50s, I mean, you had Destination Moon, you had When Worlds Collide, you had the Robert Wise classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. For me, there are two movies that stand out in that era, The Day the Earth Stood Still, 
and Forbidden Planet. What helps Forbidden Planet to stand out are its themes. For one thing, it's taken from Shakespeare's The Tempest, and then it also talks about man's inner nature, the man's subconscious, the inner beast, the id. And those two elements help to give Forbidden Planet its depth. What I noticed when I was watching it this time also is at the beginning of the movie, Wallace Stevens points out God's creation when he looks at the planet. He talks about God's handiwork. And then at the end, Leslie Nielsen mentions something to the effect that man shouldn't try to play God. Now, you know, this was a nuclear era film, so that was one thing that had to be a theme. The other thing that was interesting about Forbidden Planet was the music of Lewis and Bebe Baron. The Barons were electronic music pioneers who were contemporaries with legendary people like John Cage and Vladimir Yusashevsky. They also had one of the first electronic music recording studios in the United States, which is pretty significant as well. The issue of labeling the music electronic tonalities was pretty much a legal one, mainly because the Barons did not belong to the musicians' union, so they had to basically change that term. But it really was electronic music, and at the time, this was 1956, so this was a time when electronic music was making a quantum leap from Thaddeus K. Hill's Telharmonium back at the turn of the century to the Novacord in the 40s. The Novacord was considered an electronic music instrument mainly because it controlled envelope, and that would be the attack, decay, sustain, and release of, of a note. But in the 50s, there was a lot of experimentation going on with custom-built synthesizers that did not have keyboards. The Barons created their own circuitry and recorded it and had to splice everything together. That same year, Carl Heinz Stockhausen composed the Song of the Youth in the Cologne studio over in Europe. But this was an era where electronic music was created by splicing tape together. And it was ultimately called the classical method. I had to compose a piece back in high school that used the classical method. And apparently the soundtrack got an applause when people heard the sound effect for the ship. The audience had applauded, and I thought that was interesting. This era in electronic music was quickly followed up with another quantum leap in technology when Robert Moog created the voltage-controlled synthesizer, which allowed a musician to play an actual musical keyboard. And then Walter Carlos recorded Switched on Bach, which was a groundbreaking album in the 60s. Forbidden Planet will always stand as a unique and interesting film, a classic. And one thing I remembered Leslie Nielsen talking about how back in that day, the heroic figure had a kind of nasal quality to him. And that's why Leslie Nielsen doesn't have his full deep voice because he made his voice a little more trebly so that he could be the heroic leading man. Anyway, wonderful memories of a classic film, Forbidden Planet. Now back to you, Rico.
Well, thank you very much, Darmok, for that very cool and very informative um, uh, commentary on Forbidden Planet. Yeah, I, I, some of that musical stuff is very interesting to, to listen and, and learn about. And uh, this movie was definitely a groundbreaking film in, in terms of a, a lot of things uh, in, in look and style and music and, and just everything. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a like I said, just a classic, definitely something that I like to cover here on Treks and Sci-Fi and, and get people interested in seeing, especially people that, that may be younger or maybe never got a chance to seeing this movie. I did check while you guys were, uh, both you and Mark were playing, or when I was playing your clips there, and uh, it doesn't look like you get it. Uh, you can get it on a streaming Netflix, but you can, of course, uh, get a disc from Netflix of it or just buy it. I, I, I think, again, this is a movie that should be in every geek's library uh, to pull off the shelf and watch when you want and share it with your friends and family and so forth. So uh, that's going to just about do it for this week's edition of Treks in Sci-Fi. I am, I just checked my email. Mina was able to, while I was recording, actually, she... She sent me some uh, additional clips uh, that I uh, I was talking about earlier that I didn't get didn't come through on email. I guess there's some not exactly great uh, 3G coverage or Wi-Fi or whatever at the hotel that she's at over in Trek Vegas land. So I'm gonna just add those to the end of uh, this week's podcast since I ha- I can't really edit them in right now. I've got to I've got to just add them to the end of the show, Mina. So hopefully that's all right. I'm gonna do that. There's there's two or three of them I think. So it's going to add another, you know, whatever that time does to the show. Probably be a pretty long show this week. But I wanted to include them at least because next week on Treks and Sci-Fi, we're going to do kind of a special show. I'm going to record with some people uh, watching a, a streaming Netflix episode of TNG to be announced uh, soon. Uh, we're going to do a little poll actually on the forums uh, and uh, if you're interested, if you want to join in via Netflix and Skype, uh, we're going to probably record next Saturday. Probably, I'm going to say around 2 p.m. Eastern time will probably be a good time next Saturday. And and to be watching a TNG episode and having a, multiple people commenting on the episode while we watch. So that's next week on the show. And uh, just check the treksandsci-fi.com website for updates on the schedule of upcoming episodes. So. That's it, and and uh, stay tuned for Mina's uh, report from Vegas, uh, Star Trek Vegas, uh, 2011, and uh, that's about it, folks. So take care, and uh, here's Mina with more from uh, Vegas. Welcome, Treks and Sci-Fi listeners. That wonderful song you just heard was the incomparable James Darren uh, in concert just tonight at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention. It's about 1 in the morning on a Sunday morning, and I'm still up because this convention is wall-to-wall stuff. It starts at almost 7 in the morning every day, and it's gone till about this time of night, at night, and it has just been amazing. If you're not here, definitely plan on coming next year. James Darren did a beautiful concert, and everything else this weekend has been awesome. We have There's been over 85 guest appearances this weekend at this show. Uh, and it's our biggest show yet. We have over 5,000 attendees, and it's just been a lot of fun, and uh, I volunteer at these things, and so I can tell you firsthand it's a lot of work, but it's pretty darn cool to be here. Um, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about what's been going on because I think it's pretty cool who's been here, and, uh, you know, just just sit back and, and enjoy this. So one really cool aspect of this convention, it started on Thursday, is that this year there's always a little bit of a theme, whether it be captains or, you know, kind of focusing on one series over another or or aliens or such. And this year we're really, um, they really focused on getting some classic Trek guest stars here. 
And uh, as you can imagine, none of these guys are getting much any younger. So it's really a joy to, to be able to spend some time with them and talk to them about their experiences and, you know, take some pictures with them while they're around and they remember these things. And it's, so it's really been a joy. Personally, I didn't watch a ton of uh, original series. And so after hearing these guys talk and, and all that, I, I think I'm going to have to go back and do it because I, I really appreciate the work they did and working in, in Hollywood in that era sounds like it was a lot of hard work and it was kind of crazy. So I'm going to have to go back and watch it. Um, one of the first things that we had going on on uh, Thursday morning, uh, we had um, a panel with Yvonne Craig, who uh, was on... The original uh, was Marta in the classic Chuck episode, Whom Gods Destroy, but she was also best known as TV's Batgirl of the Batman TV series. We had Clint Howard, Ron Howard's brother, who was Baylock in that classic Star Trek episode, The Corbinite Renewer, and Lee Merriweather, Lucira in Trek's That's Which Survived. Um, so three really classy old school guests, and uh, Lee and Yvonne really look wonderful. Um, Talking about aging well, we should all aspire to look so good when we are their age. Um, following that, we had a couple of great guest stars from Star Trek The Next Generation. Eric Menyuk, who was the traveler in the classic uh, Star Trek The Next Generation episode. And Olivia Diabo, who was uh, Amanda Rogers in True Q. And uh, they were great, and it was very cool to hear about their experiences as guest stars. Following that, Dominic Keating and Connor Trenier from Enterprise. Those two are always a hoot. They bring down the house, and it's just great to see them. So, that was Thursday. After, now, the convention doesn't end when the guests come off the stage. Thursday night, all the gold attendees, those who have the gold package for the weekend, um, got to go to a great party on the 52nd floor of this hotel. Now, this year is the first year that this convention has been at the Rio Hotel in Las Vegas. Uh, it, until now, it has always been at the Hilton where the Star Trek experience was, but since the experience is no longer, sadly, uh, we didn't really need to stay there anymore, and so this year the, sh the, the convention has shifted to the Rio, and I personally think it is great. The Rio has been um, really a lot of fun. There's a lot going on here. Um, it's closer to the Strip than Hilton, and uh, I think they appreciate us Trek fans. The hotel has sponsored a couple Trek parties. Um, the bar downstairs, they have some really awesome uh, Trek-specific drinks. You can order your uh, Borg Queen, your James T. Kirk, and, of course, the infamous Warp Core Breach, which is a giant drink that is served here in a literal fish bowl. I have not drank one of them because, honestly, as little as I slept, if I drank even a few sips, I don't know if I'd wake up before the convention was over again. But, so that party was on uh, Thursday night for the gold attendees. Great views, great food, and entertainment by Tim Russ and his band, which is just a, just a lovely treat. They, I caught the tail end of their set, and it was great. Um, so many of these actors are so talented in many facets that we never really even get to see on uh, Star Trek, and it's lovely to see their talents here. So speaking of that, going into Friday at uh, this convention... Kicking it off were some DS9 aliens, Jeffrey Coombs, who was Wayun, Nicole DeBoer, who was uh, Esri's, ex, excuse me, Esri Dax, Vaughn Armstrong, who has played a whopping 12 different characters in the Trek universe, Casey Biggs, Goldemar, and Max Grudenchek, who was Rom, and of course, everyone's favorite Ferengi, Armin Shimmerman. 
lovely to hear them. It's a great panel. They had a lot of fun with each other and a lot of fun talking about Deep Space Nine. I think one thing that comes up in these conventions over and over again is how much we all now appreciate Deep Space Nine watching it later and how really, truly it seems to have aged and come out you know, as the most fully realized series in both its plot and also in the character development. And that's been really neat to hear because I come here and then usually the last couple years I've gone home and watched, you know, a good couple seasons of Deep Space Nine because it's really true. It, it's a fascinating, really special series. So following that we had the legendary Walter Koenig check off. Walter looks great and it's just so cool to see these classic guys here. Year after year they're some of the most regular guests and it's really good to see them. Following that we saw Tim Russ of Voyager and then Rene Aubergenois and Nana Visitor. Odo and Kira from Deep Space Nine. Another thing that's so cool about these shows is they really try to pair up some of the guests who either were together a lot or there's some reason and, and putting Renee and Nana on stage together just shows why that relationship on Deep Space Nine was so good because these two actors are so good with each other and they're such good friends and it's just truly beautiful to see. Following that we had the legendary Jonathan Frakes, Commander Riker, and Jonathan had a little bone to pick with creation because we have the creation logo for this convention which is on all the programs and the booklets and the giant banner that's up on stage. It has William Shatner, we have Captain Kirk, Spock, Janeway, Picard, Data, and no Riker. And that was something that Frakes was just a little bit upset about. So uh, I hear he uh, Apparently, uh, he did give some of the convention organizers a little bit of a, a good-natured hard time, and then apparently went backstage and uh, talked to Brent a little bit about it, or it made it back to Brent somehow, but we'll get back to that later. Following that, we had an awesome viewing of the Star Trek Rat Pack show. Uh, this is a was an hour-long kind of concert put on by uh, Jeffrey Coombs, Vaughn Armstrong, Casey Biggs, and Armin Shimmerman, and written and performed partially by Max Grudenchek. And really fun to see these guys, you know, again, so talented, and they do so many things, and it's very cool to see them perform for us. Uh, if you get a chance to see them perform, go for it. Following that, going into Friday, Friday night, the captain's chair guests got that same, they got the same awesome chances to see all that. Going into Saturday, the day that I just got through. Oh my goodness, too much cool stuff happening on Saturday. So this morning we started with uh, Star Trek The Next Generation panel with Denise Crosby, Susie Plaxton, who played uh, the female Q and Kalar in Next Generation, and John Q. Delancey himself. Awesome panel between those three. John Delancey is quite a personality, has a lot of interesting things to say. And I really actually enjoyed Susie and Denise talking about... Um, Denise had a lot to say about, you know, why she originally left the series and, and a lot of general things they had to say about science fiction and Star Trek in general and, and the roles of women in, in the show, especially, you know, when Next Generation came out in the late 80s. Really interesting conversation, and that's one thing that's so cool when we get these pairings together that maybe you wouldn't think of first, but uh, we get these actors together and, and sometimes there's, there's opportunity for some really nice dialogue and discussion, and I really enjoyed that. Following that, one of the highlights of personally for me from this convention, Terry Farrell, Jadzia Dax. She looks lovely. She almost never comes to these things. And uh, it was just a super treat to see her. Actually, my first Vegas convention five years ago, one of the reasons I came was to see her. 
and I was just so thrilled she was going to be here again. Again, she looks fantastic. Um, she's still not doing any acting. She's taken several years off to um, raise a beautiful son, and they live in Pennsylvania, but it's so nice to see her back, and she was a doll. Following that, we had Brent Spiner, Data himself, um, who was ribbing right back at Jonathan Frakes. Um, those two obviously have a lot of fun together. They were signing in the vendors hall all weekend together. So I'm sure those of you in there and those that got to be in there during that got, a, got an earful of the back and forth between those two. Following that, Kate Mulgrew, another one of my heroines growing up and still to this day. Kate looks great also, and one of the most fun things she brought... Uh, she brought the executive producer and one of the actors from the new web series she's doing for Adult Swim, and I'm going to get this wrong, NTSFSDSUV. It's a 15-minute procedural dramedy, maybe, we'll call it, or spoof comedy that's airing on the Adult Swim channel, which is Cartoon Network After Night, and she plays sort of the anti-Janeway. And uh, we saw a clip of it, and honestly, I had heard of it and wasn't interested, but after seeing a clip, oh, I'm so going to go there and, and check those out. They're just 15-minute episodes. It's almost like they're almost webisodes, except they're actually airing on TV. And some awesome guest stars there, other than Kate, who obviously is amazing. Uh, there is uh, Robert Picardo guest starred, John Cho guest starred, all sorts of cool people. So I'm definitely going to check that out, and I recommend you do it, too. It, it looks hilarious. Um, following Kate, we had Ethan Phillips, uh, Neelix. And then, of course, Leonard Nimoy. Awesome. Now, one of the big things about this convention, and I think why we've seen so many new people at this convention uh, this year, is that Leonard has announced that he's retiring from doing these events. Now, Leonard announces he's retiring almost as much as Cher announces she's retiring. So we'll see if it sticks or not. But as of right now, Leonard is retiring from conventions, and this is his second-to-last convention appearance, last time ever in Vegas. So, of course, seeing him was really amazing. He did a little something different this time. Usually, you know, maybe he'll talk a little bit and then answer a few audience questions. This time, he did a very wonderful retrospective of his life and his body of work, featuring some really unique, never-before-seen photos and such. It was, it was really interesting to just hear him talk hear about his experiences. Such an amazing, amazing, intelligent man. And, you know, sometimes people are really worthy of our adoration and love, and I think Leonard is one of them, who truly, truly is. Following Leonard, we had some more awesome stuff. Oh, you know what? One thing I forgot. I'm worthy of our adoration and love, and I think Leonard is one of them, who truly, truly is. Following Leonard, we had some more awesome stuff. Oh, you know what? One thing I forgot. I forgot the Klingons. How does one do that? So, what we had on stage today, we had the Klingon Summit, sponsored by the new Monopoly Star Trek Klingon Limited Edition. And we had in, on stage, in full costume, the original actors who played Lursa and Bator, Gowron and Martok together. And this was an hour of absolute hilarity. They brought people up from the audience and taunted them. They sang, they danced, all in the absolute stage-worn makeup and costumes that they did. Awesome. If you wanted to afterwards, you could get a photo op with them, and I have to say I'm a little sad I didn't do it because where else are you going to get a chance to take a picture with four fully dressed Klingons? I don't know, but it was just too cool 
And one of the, again, one of the reasons this convention is just so much darn fun. So going back to the end of today, we had um, also a very cool thing, An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe, starring Jeffrey Coombs. This was, I, I honestly didn't get a chance to watch it, but it was a one-man show, and uh, we, I think the audience members really enjoyed it, and it's just something to kind of break up the day, and it was really great um, to see, you know, again, some of our Star Trek actors, so many of them are classically trained, and it's really a joy to see them kind of in their own element, out of makeup and in kind of their own element, and it's just really cool. So, then tonight brought us to the James Darren concert. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't know about James Darren until he was on Deep Space Nine, but I educated myself afterwards and just kind of love the guy. He was here last year as a guest, but did not sing, and I think enough of us uh, complained and, and begged and moaned that this year he was our uh, gala concert guest, him and his band, and it was just a joy to hear him and see him. He looks great, you know, he's been doing this Vegas thing for a whole long time, so... Uh, as many years as I come to Vegas, I, I can now say I've seen a true Vegas superstar and a true Vegas show. It was awesome. He sang a bunch of standards and talked about his body of work a little bit. Uh, if I can say one thing that I was sad about is that he didn't sing my favorite song that he sung on the show, the It's Only a Paper Moon. But you know what? He sang a bunch of other great ones, so I'm not complaining. I have a CD with the Paper Moon on it, and I love that CD. So you know what? I'll just put that on and be happy. So, it is getting late tonight, and there is a big day tomorrow. Tomorrow, just as kind of a quick overview, we have, obviously, William Shatner, Patrick Stewart, and Kate Mulgrew are all going to be on stage together at the same time. Now, if that's not going to make your head explode, I don't know what will, but it is going to be amazing. Um, other people coming up, James Darren's going to speak. Grace Lee Whitney, who is Janice Rand, is going to be on there. And then, of course, we have George Decay and John Cho. This is John Cho's absolutely first convention appearance. I don't even know if there's another place you can see him. He's such a big movie star. He doesn't do any events like this, but he is here this weekend. Very, very cool. So he's going to be on stage with George, and then he's going to be doing some signings. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that a lot. Um, you know, the, the new Trek guests haven't really gotten with the program as the uh, you know, about visiting with fans and such as the old Trek. So I'm really glad that John's going to be here, and uh, hopefully we'll get him to bring some of his other friends from the new movie. Finally, last but not least tomorrow, Nichelle Nichols, Uhura. Looking forward to that. She is such a sweet lady. And You've been listening to Trek in Sci-Fi. For more information, visit treksinsci-fi.com. Write to Rico today at treksf at gmail.com. That's treksf at gmail.com. Set a course for Earth. Maximum warp. Copyright 2011. All rights reserved. I'm Captain Kirk. Treks in sci-fi. At ease before you sprain something. Your weekly dose of kinky goodness. And entertainment news. This mission would have failed without your help. I won't dispute that. The only podcast where no one has podcasted before. Captain Cardassians yet. Not with, we're not done with the Cardassians yet. Not with the strategic importance of that world. Thanks for joining us for Treks in Sci-Fi.
in high five.